Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I'm the Associate Director of Merck and the host of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by the authors of a Merck Research and Policy Brief focused on addressing school bullying after the onset of COVID-19 and what schools and divisions can do about it. We are also excited to have a high school counselor from one of our Merck divisions to reflect on what this research means in practice. The report is available for download on the Merck website, and we are here to summarize and reflect on the findings. Let me introduce everyone to you now. Christina Alga has been a high school counselor for 12 years and is transitioning into a director of school counseling role this July in Hanover County, Virginia. She is passionate about supporting students' post-secondary career and college planning, as well as social and emotional well-being. She serves on her school's social emotional learning committee that embeds lessons on kindness, mental health, and soft skills. She is a strong advocate for mental health awareness and serves on a community nonprofit called Lasers Ladybug Society. She also serves as a member of the Virginia School Counselor Association professional development team to help school counselors gain valuable opportunities for growth across the state of Virginia. Christina, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. Alicia Gaston is a mental health professional with over 27 years of experience, including quality management, school-based support services, mental health and substance abuse case management, homeless outreach services, and clinical documentation training facilitation. She's the founder of Maximizing Character, a nonprofit 501c3 youth organization where she has provided character education and mentoring for the past 10 years. Alicia is a doctoral student in the educational leadership program at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her research interests include the effects of character education on school performance and personal life, bullying prevention strategies for parents and educators, the effectiveness of social and emotional learning in, the, in and out of the classroom, and the positive effects of physical fitness and mental wellness on life success. Alicia, with your research interests, it's no wonder you got involved with this project. Welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and then finally, we have Kim Dupree. Kim has worked in education for over 20 years in various roles, such as school counseling, central office, and higher education administration. She is currently a doctoral student in the Educational Leadership Program at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her passion is supporting students' physical, emotional, and social well-being. Kim is currently a Virginia Tiered Systems of Support Coach at Virginia Commonwealth University, where she supports divisions in Virginia to plan, develop, and sustain multi-tiered frameworks of support. Her research interests include systems thinking to solve complex problems, childhood adversity and trauma, and equity and justice in education. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Um, and I should mention, I used to be a high school counselor with um, four years of experience. So when I read 12 and 27 and 20, I'm like, all right, <laughs> I'm kind of paling in comparison. There's a lot of brain power and experience on this call. Um, so collectively, there's around, what, 50 to 60 years of experience working in mental health in schools. So what, a, what an awesome group of people we have assembled here today. Um, and I also want to mention that the report that we're going to summarize the findings of here, um, there were several other people from within VCU who are authors on that report. So I just want to give credit to the incredible team that we had working on this report that's now available on the Merck uh, website. Um, so let's get into discussing it. So Alicia, let's start with you. What does research and trend data show about the nature of school bullying since the onset of COVID-19? Sure. So the research and the trend data um, suggest that the early days of the pandemic may have impacted the likelihood of students engaging in bullying. 
So for example, um, the typical efforts by school personnel to detect and prevent bullying um, were probably thwarted by the shifting focus of the pandemic. Um, uh, additional tasks such as enforcing social distancing and um, hygiene to protect the student's physical health um, you know, impeded the fact that they were able to be able to, to see what was going on or identify that. Um, the pandemic also disrupted access to mental health support staff, uh, such as school counselors and social workers, um, as well as school psychologists, which may have led to COVID-related stressors experienced by the students. Um, and finally, just the rapid pivot to online learning um, in the early months of COVID. Um, there were a lot, lots of concerns about the potential for cyberbullying to occur um, and to also continue once uh, students return to in-person learning. Right. So it's like anything else with COVID that um, things were really difficult, especially initially in the spring of 2020. And then that coupled with disrupted access to the people in schools who could actually do something about it. And I think it's really interesting that that data showed kind of an initial dip in bullying. And then now I think research is kind of trying to catch up with what's actually happening in schools. And Christina, you actually work in a school right now. How yeah. does what Alicia just shared resonate with your experiences as a high school counselor working in bullying prevention since the pandemic? Yes. So as Alicia is talking about, you know, the access to school counselors, I'm having flashback of that year of not being able to see my students in my office and and not being able to be in the classrooms with them. And it, it seems like so long ago, but also yesterday at the same time. And it was such a hard, hard year. Um, so, it you know, it definitely it was a huge impact. We were tied with so many things with social distancing. Um, it was hard to get in. We weren't doing, you know, classroom lessons. We were having to do them virtually. Um, it was a really hard time. So it does really resonate with me and my experiences. And now we're finally getting back to a, you know, somewhat normal school year, um, being having everyone back in person. And, you know, we, we have seen, I've read through the research and um, trend data, and I definitely agree with, you know, the increases in bullying has come back um you know now that we are back face to face and i feel like we're fa as as we're facing you know that ac academic gap in students learning we're also seeing that social skills gap um and that's what we're really trying to work through with these students um they're having you know a hard time with some of the communication skills from being online for so long um so we're really trying to push back into the classrooms and get in there and work with those students on uh, the social emotional learning piece that they we're not getting through those years of COVID. Right. It seems like maybe there's all these kind of effects of COVID that's kind of like the residue of what happened during that really acute mm -hmm. period of COVID. And with bullying, mm -hmm. I'm just curious, Christine, does it seem like like there was kind of the, the nature of bullying pre-COVID? And then, like you said, there was that really weird disrupted time where mm -hmm. students were online and maybe there were some issues in disrupted social skill development, things like that. And now mm -hmm. we're back in school in this kind of normal environment. Does it feel like it, is bullying kind of categorically different than it was pre-COVID or like, does it feel familiar? Do you notice anything that's kind of like tangible changes? Um, in some ways, it feels familiar. Like, it, you know, I've worked in education for 12 years, so, I've, you know, we, we've been working through it for a long time, but I think it's it's heightened a lot recently. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's um, yeah. I, I think that maybe their research needs to catch up a little bit with what those experiences are, because I don't think it's completely captured what you're sharing based mm -hmm. off of your experiences and what we've heard from other folks on our team. Like we have other school counselors on our team, mm -hmm. for example, who have talked about what this is like in their divisions. Mm -hmm. um, and so not only has bullying 
um, changed and kind of amplified in some ways since the pandemic, but it's also affected some groups, student groups more than others. Um, yes. And research gave us some evidence related to this. So Kim, what student groups have been particularly impacted by bullying since the pandemic, according to the research that we pulled together in this brief? Well, and David, you kind of talked about during our research and the onset of the pandemic, um, there was, you know, either similar patterns or decreased levels of cyberbullying. Um, however, Asian students were the exception to that we saw, and particularly they were more likely to be cyberbullied than students from other racial groups, and they also were experiencing xenophobia on social media outlets such as Twitter during the onset of COVID. And then this, this kind of surprised me a little bit, but our research also showed that students in elementary school were more likely than our older youth to experience higher rates of that cyber and in-person bullying, specifically our fourth and fifth grade students. Mm -hmm. And we did not really find any significant differences between genders. Um, female and non-binary students were more likely to report being victims of bullying, while our male students were more the um, perpetrators of bullying. So kind of similar things to before COVID as well. Um, our, our female and non-binary students were more likely to perceive instances of bullying grounded in that bias or prejudice more than our male students. However, the male students tend to report that higher physical um, type bullying. And then one thing I also wanna point out is our research suggested that our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, and queer LGBTQ youth were definitely more likely to perceive bullying in person and that cyberbullying experience related anxiety um, than our heterosexual and cisgender peers. So both before and after the onset of COVID. Right, and we, um, we've recently put out another research brief that's related to suicide prevention in schools. Um, and there's some evidence from that brief suggesting that LGBTQ students have been particularly impacted in their um, suicidal thoughts and behavior since the onset of COVID-19. So that that overlap is really important to note for sure. And I think that's so interesting, the, the idea that cyberbullying initially dipped mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because of this kind of, apparently there's a there needs to be a physical connection for there to be eventually cyberbullying that kind of comes from that. Right. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm curious, like, do you or anybody else have any thoughts about that? That was one of the findings of this research that really surprised me. Yeah, I would agree that uh, when I read that, I was like, yeah, that does make a lot of sense, actually, because um, I do, don't feel like we dealt with a lot of cyberbullying um, when many of the students were online. Um, so you do have to have that kind of physical connection first. And then it, we notice it either starts at home the night before or it, you know, and it comes to school the next day or it starts in school and ends at home. Right. And our research that we found was showing that uh, students were more likely to report cyberbullying than educators were. So it might also be that like it's happening more mm -hmm. than what we're actually being able to detect. And there's some professional development that we're going to talk about here in a minute related to that. Mm -hmm. um, so, Christina, kind of reflecting on what Kim just shared about mm -hmm. student groups that have been particularly impacted. What have you noticed in your role? Like which student groups do seem to be most impacted by bullying since the onset of COVID? Um, I definitely, you know, see the LGBTQ, um, you know, perceiving a lot of bullying um, before and after COVID, but it's definitely, I feel like, heightened since COVID as well. Um, and then I definitely, you know, can see that the male being more physical and the female being, you know, maybe less physical, but obviously re reporting it more. Um, so I definitely can, I noticed that a lot with those groups um, based on the research. 
Right. So it seems like maybe there's some continuation of what we were seeing in terms of trends and differences in bullying mm -hmm. behaviors before the pandemic and after. But it seems like something like, again, we're also recommending future research. It seems like an area that we probably need to dig into a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but research showed several different strategies that schools and divisions can use to be able to actually prevent bullying um, and specifically some things that are supposed to be pretty effective in the most recent years. Um, so Alicia, let's start with you with this. What are some of the strategies that we found recommended in the research for addressing school bullying since the onset of COVID-19? Um, yes, so um, there were several things, um, several very uh, effective strategies, um, several of those being promoting a positive school climate, um, as well as curriculum and classroom practices. And with regards to promoting school climate, um, it's just being able to um, prioritize student voice, um, giving them an opportunity um, you know, to discuss um, you know, the different lockdown measures um, that were um, offered um, as a momentary reprieve from you know, previous bullying, um, being able to prioritize uh, promoting um, uh, feeling comfortable in reporting um, instances of bullying. So just giving them um, a, a very comfortable and safe space uh, to be able to talk with teachers, um, to be able to communicate um, their feelings about um, what is happening with bullying. Um, also, um, curriculum and classroom practices, um, social and emotional learning, um, basically focused on modeling and rewarding kind and caring behavior um, really helps uh, the students um, have a sense of belonging. Um, so those are some other strategies um, that we found in uh, this research as well. Also teaching about digital um, citizenship. Um, it, that can not only help address cyberbullying, but also strengthen connections between the schools as well as the parents. Um, and so um, again, just one of the other great ways um, that educators and parents and the community can come together um, to you know, have these, these better strategies for preventing school bullying. One of the things I thought that um, was great that stood out was uh, more physical activity, for example, um, allowing the students to have recess. Um, and it says that you know the, the research was showing that it helps promote emotional and behavioral regulation in students. And I thought that was very huge um, because uh, you know they're, they're in school, whether they're online or whether they were in the classroom and they've got a lot of energy. <laughs> so, um, so being able to um, just kind of shift things in the classroom, um, whether it's recess or whether it's even incorporating more movement into the classroom activities, um, I think are great strategies for preventing some of the school bullying. Yeah, and all that seems so consistent with the work that you do, um, Alicia. So if, if folks were able to see our video, Alicia has all these um, motivational and inspirational phrases on the wall behind her. So like the idea of creating a warm and supportive environment is, is so crucial. Um, and it, I thought it was really interesting for the research, just the idea that um, not only does that potentially reduce instances of bullying, but it also creates an environment where students feel more comfortable reporting it, right? So like there's, you kind of have a, um, there's sort of a, a twofold approach to actually being able to approach it. And what I like about everything that you just shared is a lot of this is things that schools are already doing. And so it's not that you necessarily need to reinvent the wheel. You could kind of build off of existing practices. Um, and some of the other recommendations that came out from the research, one of them is around strategies for school and family collaboration. So anything that schools can do to be able to connect with families um, is really important. Um, research suggests that, especially with cyberbullying prevention, it's really important that families actively monitor their child's devices um, and set 
clear expectations and rules regarding the technology that they use. One of the studies that we um, we found and included in our study uh, or in our report showed that only 22% of parents or guardians in their sample monitored their children's internet use. So it's just in terms of cyberbullying prevention, especially, it's just really important to partner with families to educate about the potential instances of cyberbullying and really to encourage oversight to be able to do something about it. Um, and this also kind of reminds me that Surgeon General just recently came out with a report about the negative mental health impacts of excessive social media use and adolescence. And so like this all kind of goes hand in hand. Um, and then another piece of it is it's important to really, and this is related to what you were saying, Alicia, about including student voice. It's also really important to include um, family and parent voices in the formulation of school policies, classroom practices, resources. They are familiar about what their children are experiencing. Um, so it's really a collective effort that any kind of policies related to bullying, they just things have changed since the onset of the pandemic. And so any policy changes that need to happen really should include the perspectives of families and parents as well. Um, and then also there's uh, several recommendations related to professional development and professional development is one of the things that kind of initiated the this research brief to begin with is like what can we actually do to train faculty and staff in our schools to to um, to work with students and bullying prevention since the onset of COVID. Um, so the first point is just that the pandemic is potentially made existing professional development related to bullying prevention uh, somewhat obsolete or less relevant because things have changed since then. So it's necessary to update that um, and specifically like how to actually address school bullying since the onset of COVID-19. And one of the ways that we need to, to make sure to focus on this, um, and Christina, you mentioned this before during the remote learning period, it was it seemed like maybe there was a dip in cyberbullying that was happening during that time, but it also could be that it's kind of hard to, to detect bullying in online environments. And so mm -hmm. research suggests that that needs to be a component of professional development as well. Um, but some of that could just be a product of a lot of the research that we found and summarized was from that period where students were really primarily online. So again, research kind of needs to catch up a little bit with what's actually happening in schools. Um, and so research, research was showing that teachers really perceive a need for training that's specifically focused on things like cyberbullying. And so really being able to focus on that in training makes a lot of sense. Um, and there's some studies that are summarized in our report that really show that teachers who participate in cyberbullying and digital citizenship related professional development feel more equipped to be able to actually address it whenever it's it comes across um, in their classroom um, or an online environment. So just giving them the skills that they need. Um, mm -hmm. What's not included in the research, and this is a gap that we really need to address, is that there's not a lot of discussion about like what physical bullying or verbal bullying or social bullying looks like since the onset of COVID-19. So as the research catches up with that professional development and evidence-based professional development needs to catch up as well. Um, so Alicia, out of the things that we just talked about, which of them seem maybe the most feasible? Like what could schools and divisions do right now that might be most effective? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched upon it a little bit earlier is, um, you know, promoted that, that positive school environment and those classroom practices. Um, and getting some parent, you know, getting this parent support, I think those are some of the quicker um, uh, preventative measures that can be taken right away. You know, it doesn't cost anything to, you know, uh, say a kind word and encourage a student. Um, whereas, you know, it's, it's going to take a little bit more time to get all the training in, um, you know, professional development training in, even policies, you know, even though you may be connecting with parents, it's, it's going to take time to get the uh, implement them in the policy development and so forth. Um, so I think promoting this, the positive school um, climate 
making mm -hmm. sure that those uh, classroom, you know, practices take place, you know, with SEL is going to be very helpful right away. Yeah, absolutely. So again, it's a good idea for us to kind of build off of what we know schools are already doing, especially mm -hmm. if it's something that's not too resource intensive, um, mm -hmm. or they have to, to, to start a brand new initiative. Um, one other piece of our brief that we put out is a, a summary of policies that are related specifically to school bullying prevention at the state level, but also in the Merck region. So we have six school division partners. And what we typically do for these briefs is we'll go in and look at the school board docs for each of our six school divisions. And we'll do some thematic analysis to kind of pull out summaries of what are some of the things that all of our Merck divisions are doing and what are some of the things that some of our Merck divisions are doing. But all of that is really guided by state policy. And so there are several um, state policies that guide Virginia school boards in terms of bullying prevention. So um, some of the pieces that really stood out is just that it's um, school boards are required to include bullying prevention as a part of their character education for their school divisions. Christina, I imagine you're pretty familiar with this in your work with SEL and your school division. Um, that it's necessary to specify bullying as a prohibited behavior whenever they're crafting or dra drafting their uh, student codes of conduct. Um, mm -hmm. And it's important to implement policies and procedures that actually help to educate um, employees about bullying and the need to create a bullying environment. Um, and then in addition to those sort of like state legislature policies that sort of guide the work of schools, there's also Virginia Board of Education back in 2013 published model policies for addressing school bullying in Virginia public schools. So this is guidance for school divisions about some of the things that they really should include, including um, that school divisions need to include a clear definition of bullying. So defining it is really important. And this makes me think, Kim, about the research you summarized about like elementary school students might be more likely to report cyberbullying, for example, it's possible that that could be somewhat based off of just having a different definition of it, right? So like making sure that there's a clear definition is really important. Um, making sure that school board policy or school division policies um, are really focused on like whole school evidence-based interventions. I'm thinking about MTSS here in the framework that could be really uh, uh, productive for school bullying prevention. That's important to annually train staff, students, and parents on school bullying prevention. Um, so not something that happens at one time, but this needs to be an annual training. Um, there's a recommendation for annual surveys of your stakeholders in your division about your anti-bullying efforts. Um, and as somebody who's a, a researcher and an evaluator, I can't stress enough, if it's possible to collect data, I know people are sick of surveys, I totally <laughs> understand, but if it's possible to collect some of that information about like, how effective are those efforts, then you can do this on an annual basis and try to understand like what are some of the things that are most effective and things that we should improve. Um, and then just making sure that you outline policies for investigation, response, um, especially with students with disabilities who are involved in a bullying incident, and then outlining procedures for parent notification about bullying, whether their child was bullied or somebody who actually per perpetrated bullying. Um, so our Merck divisions, as you might expect, follow these policies. Um, so they set clear definitions for Bullying, all of them include clear definitions for cyberbullying in their policies. It's really important, especially with the rise of cyberbullying, like we were discussing. They all clearly define their uh, processes for reporting bullying in their school board policies. So it's very clear if you experience bullying, what should we do about it? Um, and then any character education that they have also includes um, a, a curriculum that's related to bullying and bullying prevention. So this is something that's consistent in all of our divisions. 
Um, some of our divisions really go so far as to say that cyberbullying is unacceptable in their technology use agreements. So that's another place where it could be reiterated. Um, they require annual staff development related to bullying. And then some of our Merck divisions recognize October as Bullying Prevention and Awareness Month. And this is something that I remember when I was a high school counselor too, where we, I think it was orange, like you wore orange uh, as a school and there's all kinds of different um, uh, like programs and uh, resources that were happening at the school that month. Bullying is bullying prevention is a is a um, year long effort, but having a month where you acutely focus on it definitely makes sense too. Um, so, considering these different policies that are guiding the work of bullying prevention at the state level and in our region, Kim, with your work with VTSS and MTSS, I'm really curious. How do you see these policies aligning with that tiered systems of support framework that are implemented in schools uh, across Virginia? This is such a great question, and we could probably do a whole podcast on that, but I don't want to make you fall asleep. Just because I love it and I can talk about it all day doesn't mean people want to listen to it all day. So I'll try to keep it as short as possible, but we we talked about before we even started that policies really are meant to drive change in education, yet you're hearing, you know, Christina talk. David, you said, you know, there's, we're still seeing some of those same struggles, whether it was post, pre, now. Um, and they're still existing. Those bullying um, things are still happening in our schools. So that tells us that good policies are just really not good enough. Um, we really have to remember that many things need to happen to create those conditions that allow educators to apply those policies and interventions as intended. So when we're scaling up a new policy with success or we're adopting those new evidence-based practices to support those policies, the educational system, and David, you talked about that, the families, the students, that's our educational system at all levels. They really have to have a, a process that allows for that continuous improvement. And the Virginia Board of Education, that model policy that's addressing bullying that you said that's outlining all those components really has that whole school approach. And you did such a great job of talking about it, David. Um, that training, having a clear definition, those evidence-based practices, having stakeholder feedback and procedures for keeping our families in the loop. Well, MTSS, a multi-tiered system support, really provides that ideal framework to align all of those things that you just talked about. It's systematic, it's data-based, and allows our divisions and schools to really provide targeted evidence-based interventions to meet the needs of all kids, whether it's the kid who's um, being bullied, the kid who is bullying, the bystander. We want to hit all of our kids. And this is really done through a clearly defined process that is implemented, and this is a key word, to fidelity by all of our stakeholders within the school. Um, and I can't leave without talking about, when we talk about MTSS, I want you to know it's not just about the tiers. I talked a little bit more about that. Um, but when we are talking about our tiers, we're, we're talking at tier one that's universal. So a tier one, when we're talking about policies, we're focusing on that prevention through the development of school-wide approaches um, to create those classroom, inclusive classroom environments for our kiddos. And our tier two, we're really integrating bullying prevention within existing small group interventions so that we can strengthen those social emotional skills, which I know, Christina, you're probably spending a lot of time doing <laughs> as a school counselor. And then tier three, we're really looking at that individualized support um, and that can include more intensive interventions that needs, meets the needs of our students that are identified as a bully or a victim, as well as the needs of their family. The MTSS framework, I think, is um, it's pretty prevalent in our 
Virginia schools. So it's really important for us to take a look at how it applies in any situation. It certainly applies to bullying. And we have a study that's focused on supporting mental health in schools and MTSS comes up a good bit. And we have representatives on that team from VTSS. Um, and I feel like I didn't know much about MTSS or VTSS before getting started with that study. I was like, is this a program? What exactly is it? But the more I learn about it, the more the, like the idea is that it's a framework that existing interventions can kind of fit within that. And it's just a way of really structuring it so that um, there's not duplicated efforts and that there's really kind of a spirit of collaboration. So it makes sense that MTSS kind of maps onto everything that we've shared. And Christina, Again, going back to your work, considering everything that we've talked about here, describing this from the research and policy perspective, we're always really curious about like what this actually means in practice. What have you actually found to be the most effective strategies for bullying prevention, um, and how have you adapted your efforts since the pandemic? Uh, well, first, like all of these strategies, we want to do them all. <laughs> like we want to be able to hit them all in the schools because um, they are all in collaboration. That is what we need to be doing to best support our students. Um, but what I have specifically found to be very helpful, especially since um, COVID, is we are really promoting our um, SEL, social emotional learning lessons. Uh, we have a countywide calendar um, that we have each month. There's um, a theme and we input um, lessons through our, we have what's called flex. So it's like a time for our kind of our character education lessons. So um, be put into all classrooms. So we uh, record them ahead of time with our social emotional learning committee. Um, so like, for instance, you know, October is our unity month for bullying prevention. So we input lessons in um, relation to that. We have a unity day um, and we also do lessons on empathy, compassion, caring, um, environments, um, healthy relationship. We push those lessons into all of our um, classrooms as well. We do kindness month during February, so that's been good. So we're really trying to enhance those uh, positive communication skills with students um, and really teach them what empathy means. Um, and one other thing that we have um, done in our um, school is um, made May our mental health awareness month to kind of tie out the end of the year. We just um, wrapped up and that's one of my favorite months to do. Um, and I, I know we talked, y'all talked a little bit of research about um, student voice. And one thing we have found helpful with our SCL committee is to include students on it. So we have students and then we can get more student buy-in um, by having them kind of lead some of the lessons. And one of our students has actually been our voice on all of our recorded SEL lessons that go into all the classrooms. So I think that's been really effective. And um, we did Wellness Wednesdays the entire month of um, May and made it like a school-wide project. We made a huge um, poster board for mental health awareness that one of our students created and it was a school-wide coloring page effort so during lunch students would come up to kind of color as like a therapy you know, a therapeutic thing to do and uh, we have it hanging up in front of our counseling office now um, so that's been really cool as well um, so all of the SE I'm huge with the SEL projects I love it and that's been one of the most effective ways um, to kind of continue bullying prevention throughout the entire year because like you all said it is a year effort, not just the month of October for bullying prevention. Um, so yeah, I, but I agree with, you know, making the teachers more comfortable as well has, uh, I think getting them the training would be really helpful, um, you know, cause they're, they don't go to school to teach these type of lessons. So we need to kind of help prepare them for, you know, to be able to get to that tier one and get all the students, um, you know, those type of lessons as well, so. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that we're focusing on in our research mm -hmm. is to help prepare our teachers to meet the mental health yes. needs of their students. Um, and like research suggests that there's, there's a real sense of responsibility to meet those needs, but not always the training like you were sharing. And so like mm -hmm. we're at a point where it's an all hands on deck approach to, to mental health support in schools. And Absolutely. what I like what you just shared, Christine, is that you work in a high school. Mm -hmm. And so like social emotional learning, this is not something that just happens at an elementary level, but you're describing mm -hmm. high school students coloring as like a therapeutic <laughs> intervention, which is great. Um, like I remember having a math teacher in high school that would read us, a, um, it was for an advanced trigonometry class. It was pretty hard, but I remember mm -hmm. she would read us a children's book at the start of the week, just as like, uh, we're going to be okay. <laughs> just to kind of yeah. like take care of everybody's mental health. And then you get into sine, cosine, tangent, all the, the complicated stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And what you're just describing, it also makes you think that there's just, there's already so much stuff that's going on in schools. And so there are lessons mm -hmm. for us as researchers and policymakers, I think, is in terms of like building off of what already exists um, and uh, just trying to like maximize the things that seem to be most effective. Kim, what are your thoughts on like, based off of what Christina has just shared, what are some of the things that researchers and policymakers should keep in mind about how bullying prevention policies are actually implemented in schools? There were so many thoughts that I was thinking about as Christina was talking. And as a former school counselor, I remember um, a lot of that work, Christina falling on my shoulders as well. Um, and that's kind of something that made me think like that it, it has to be a whole school approach. It can't fall on the shoulders of one department. Um, and when we do it that way, then it becomes the climate and it becomes what we do. And I, that's the one thing that really stuck out to me. What you said is, you know, you're using those evidence-based practices, you know how to use them. You went to school for them. Um, but it shouldn't just fall on, on your shoulders. And then also that piece of how do we know we're doing what we said we're, we're doing? How do we know that it's impacting our kids? So mm -hmm. making sure that we're, we're doing that, that word fidelity and doing it in progress monitoring what's happening. Mm -hmm. So those would be the things, the training we've all talked about. We know that it can't just be a one and done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, it, I think you're right, Kim. And we need to, like as researchers, especially, I think we need to be careful to not make recommendations that are just going to pile more work on Christina. <laughs> you know, like there's so many things that she's already doing that our school counselors and other school-based mental health providers and administrators and teachers are already doing. Um, and, you know, policymakers make a lot of decisions around resources, but it's just important for us to not make recommendations without considering the context and the amount of resources and the amount of effort and time that are going to be involved in actually implementing them. So that's a, a bit of a charge for, for researchers as well. Um, so based off of everything that we just shared, kind of distilling, we found six key points that we really wanted to share as the key takeaways from this research. And I'm curious to hear what other people think about what's the one thing that you want people to know. Um, so some of the key takeaways and enduring questions that we had about addressing school bullying since COVID-19. First is that there's clearly a need to, to more accurately measure how bullying has changed in the post-COVID world. Um, I'd say post-COVID, but COVID's here to stay. But just like in this new kind of reality that we have after we've gone through the acute phase of the pandemic, kind of the nature of data collection is that there's usually a lag. And so we're re still reflecting on data that was collected during this time where um, students were in a remote learning period or they were separate from their school, um, their traditional kind of learning environment. And so research really needs is going to need to catch up with this. And so I imagine the data that is coming out in the next couple of years is going to more accurately reflect what the actual experiences are of folks in our schools. Um, a second point is that 
claims about cyberbullying potentially reducing at the onset of COVID and how that's potentially still a lingering thing. Uh, we worry that that might not be particularly accurate. So research is showing that. Um, research is increasingly starting to show that students especially are detecting cyberbullying as being a really big problem. Um, educators tend to not detect it quite as much as students do. And so maybe there's a need for calibration there, but claims about cyberbullying reduction might not be completely consistent with current experiences. So again, that's something that we wanna make sure that we're still paying attention to. Um, the third point is that any efforts to address school bullying need to simultaneously focus on student mental health. And so that's one of the reasons I'm glad our conversation has gone the way it's gone. And that Christina, with your work in mental health support and, and um, Hanover, and I know that Hanover already has a, a division level mental health task force, right? So mm -hmm. like anything that's related to bullying prevention, we need to address student mental health simultaneously. And we have several resources from our Merck mental health study that are available on our website that I hope people will check out. Um, a lot of the bullying conclusions that we uh, found from the research were collected during the earliest months when students were largely participating in exclusively remote learning. So research in the coming years is hopefully going to help us to eliminate how bullying in school settings is, is what it's like actually now. Um, and that includes not just cyberbullying, but also what is physical, verbal, and social bullying looks like. Um, it was also really clear from the research that there's a need to prioritize cyberbullying for good reason, but also digital citizenship in professional development and social emotional learning and curricular practices in the schools. Um, the digital citizenship is kind of a key piece of what it means to actually produce, uh, prevent cyberbullying. Um, and then finally, as I mentioned, cyberbullying is a big focus in this research that we curated, but it seems like there's not been as much focus on physical, social, and verbal bullying. Um, and how that's changed since COVID. And that's something that we really need to make sure that we're paying sufficient attention to as well. Like Christina, I'm thinking about what you shared about um, during that kind of disrupted learning period when students were isolated, some of the social skills might've been disrupted during that time too, right? So that would suggest that there's probably gonna be some interactional issues, potentially some additional bullying and other forms that might emerge from that. Um, and then keeping in mind that physical component to cyberbullying, right? So like as students connect with each other in person, that might instigate cyberbullying incidents that might spill over into other bullying incidents in schools as well. So this is some of the key takeaways that we found in the research, but um, for folks who are working on this project, but also Christina and your work, I'm just curious, like what's the main thing that you think people need to know about how bullying has changed since COVID and what schools should do about it? Um, I, that's, that's hard to think about one main thing. Um, there's so many things. Um, to think about, but I think it's, you know, we just, we have to help teach them compassion and empathy. And, um, you know, that's what we want to do with the social emotional learning, um, you know, to be kind to each other um, and really, you know, just help support each other. So I think, you know, one thing that schools can really do is help with that social emotional piece, but also, you know, like you said, tie it into the mental health piece. Um, and I do, I, we are one of the counties that have the mental health clinicians in our all four high schools um, starting next year. And that has been um, a huge support to our students that really need um, that extra help. Cause a lot of times you see the bully and you see the mental health needs at the same time. Um, so getting him the, the support that they need to work on the, um, the skills that they need to be okay, you know, to overcome some of the challenges that they face on a daily basis in and out of school. I would just say exactly what Christina said that, um, you know, we are, I mean, in the United States, we're in a mental health crisis. 
And, you know, we saw in our research, especially with our LGBTQ, that they were having higher bullying related anxiety. We know anxiety is a huge um, thing right now with our kids. Mm -hmm. And anything that schools can do to align that, and again, not make it one more thing, but that is the thing, <laughs> you know, we're, we're taking care of our kids' needs so that we can help them, um, you know, socially and emotionally. Mm -hmm. yep. Likewise, I mean, I, I again, 100% as a mental health provider, um, as a former therapeutic day treatment, you know, um, uh, behavior counselor who used to work in the schools with the children, um, it, it is definitely needed that simultaneous focus, um, you know, on supporting the student mental health. Um, again, you all have said it, you know, we're, <laughs> I'm just echoing it, but um, just so important, so important to our, our youth and, um, you know, kudos to you all who are doing the, the character, you know, development and SEL and, and all of that, because um, it is, we, we, we need to be kind to one another, kind to ourselves, kind to those professionals that are working with the children uh, and the youth every day. <laughs> um, so I just think all of those things are, are extremely important right now. And, um, and, and it, it just starts with being kind. Yes, agreed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And um, one thing that we've been reflecting a lot on in our mental health Merck study is just this idea of, um, so we really believe in the idea of tier one interventions that are available to all students, but it also, in some ways, it might make sense to kind of not take a one size fits all approach to like mental health support and by extension, I think school bullying prevention um, like our research showed that there's student groups that have been particularly impacted by this. So it makes sense, I think, to find ways to maybe do some targeted intervention and prevention efforts in schools that might be an opportunity to, to dig in a little bit more, um, maybe some opportunity for professional development, um, but also some future research partnerships with schools of what is it that we could do to really get granular in our support for students. Um, and there's Obviously, a, a lot of information that we've covered here, and it's um, summarized in this research brief that's available for anybody who's interested in learning more about this. Um, and this research is going to be emerging, but we hope that this is a really helpful snapshot of where things are right now and what schools can do about addressing school bullying since COVID-19. Um, and we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you would like to read this report and learn more about preventing school bullying, you can find it on our website at merck.soe.vcu.edu reports. There you will also find other research and policy briefs that we have published on various topics related to public education, including suicide prevention, artificial intelligence, and more. If you'd like to stay up to date on Merck research resources and professional learning opportunities, you can sign up for our listserv on our homepage. You can also subscribe and listen to other episodes of Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Our thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Many thanks to report authors, Alicia Gaston and Kim Dupree for your work on this resource and to Christina Alga for your work on bullying prevention in Hanover County Public Schools. Thank you for joining us today for this conversation. Um, and of course, thanks as always to you at home for joining our discussion. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who is interested in evidence-based practices for addressing school bullying. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon. <laughs>